This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Chapter Tactics. I am your host, Mr. Petey Pob, and I'm going to redo this intro. <laughs> oh, no, not like this. What the fuck was my intro? God damn it. Oh, I hope I've done this, this is only over a hundred times. Too much, too much hanging out on uh, front on uh, on frontline gaming, buddy. Uh, oh yeah, right. Signals, no. Forty. Okay, okay, cool. I got it. All right. Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast that focuses on playing warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Mr. Petey Pob, and with me I have the one, the only, Skari from Scarcast. I think I messed up and I have to start all over again. <laughs> I'm going to have to put that in now. For those of you listening, <laughs> talking about the blooper at the front of this episode, which I'm, I'm definitely going to have to put in now. Uh, and then, of course... Our newest co-host, Mr. Robot, Brandon Grant. It's good to be here, Pete. Petey Pat. Right, and then finally... Tra- in translation, 00110001. And then finally, swooping in again from the 40k Stat Center, is the one, the only, Peter the Falcon. Kaka. No, that Peter. What's you know, going on, man? Kaka is in uh, in Spanish. What are you doing? Oh, yeah. Insult everybody. I, I, yeah, I do what I do. You know, it, it's it, we'll give Peter a pass this week. He did just get a new doggy. He's probably just really, really tired from cleaning up poop. Oh, slobber. negative, negative. He's amazing. He came litter trained like a cat. It's amazing. I don't have to do anything. Litter trained like yeah. a. Yeah. But he's like a bulldog, but he's a cat. Yeah, I mean, he also is kind of like a, a bird. He likes to perch on your shoulder, and, you know, he's 20 pounds. So it's not fun sometimes, but he's a fucking adorable. Oh. I love him already. Well, right on. We all know that Space Marines have the Falcon down, and don't you guys worry. We are going to talk a little bit about Space Marines this episode, because I think we're probably going to be mentioning them briefly every episode until someone figures them out. Or until GW nerfs them. We'll see. But anyways, uh, today's round. A, <laughs> uh, today's episode, we're going to be talking mostly about terrain, how to properly identify the terrain on the table, and how it affects your army positively and negatively. Looking at the terrain, all the factors that you need to look at when you stand when you go up to your table, including what decisions you need to make and what terrain is good with certain armies and what terrain isn't. Um, it's going to be a complete terrain one hundred and one 
episode. It should be a lot of fun. I have two phenomenal players that definitely know their terrain in and out, and Peter and myself. So it should be a lot of fun. All right. So moving on, this episode was brought to you by the Frontline Gaming Network, frontlinegaming.org, and of course the patrons over at our Patreon. If you would like to get access to our Facebook group and Discord, you get to ask us questions at the end of every episode and so much more, as well as being eligible to win a special prize every month, sign over to head on over to patreon.com slash chapter tactics to support the podcast. It really helps us out a lot. This month we'll be giving away one vehicle kit to one lucky patron. I've decided to hold off on the whole awakened psychic that GW's been teasing um, until next month, because it looks like they're not going to release that stuff until next month anyways. So this month I'm going to give away a vehicle to someone. Yes, it can be any vehicle, not Forge World. Sorry guys, I'm not made of money. <laughs> but um, it can be any vehicle in the GW range that includes a knight. So whatever you know, whatever you want. If that's the vehicle keyword, you win it. All right. Uh, also, some other announcements. The Iron Halo is going to be this weekend. The Iron Halo is, of course, an official sponsor of Chapter Tactics. If you would like to sponsor Chapter Tactics as a TO or event organizer, you can always email me at frontlinegamingpdpob at gmail.com. There's lots of benefits there. The Iron Halo is going to be absolutely amazing. Uh, we're going to be shoutcasting it live via Twitch, I think, or, or Discord. Um, and then uh, we'll basically be shoutcasting live uh, the event. And as well, there will be shoutcasters at the event shoutcasting. So it should be a lot of fun. There should be a lot of commentary. There's already amazing players going to the Iron Halo. It'll be very competitive. The train's going to look good. It should just be a really fun time. So if you're looking for something to watch this weekend, head on over to twitch.com slash TV, or you can go to ironhalo.org and check them out there. And that is going to be Bartlesville, Oklahoma. All right. Whew, did I miss anything else? Any other announcements, guys? Mm, well, no. in my mind, I think we should start all over again. Yep. I think oh, at this again. point, you screwed up the intro so badly. Let's I think just we redo. start over again. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome. <laughs> and right. I vected. it. Oh, man, he vected my intro. That's what happened the first time. I was playing Years in the Making, or whatever the fuck that strategy was called. I never man. remember the name of that strategy. Pablo. And Language. I'm sorry. It's just that, that strategy, I'm always... Every time <laughs> Frankie uses it, I'm always like, oh, it's this. And Frankie's like, no, it's not. It's actually a plan two years in the making. I don't know. Whatever the proper name of that strategy is. A plan generations in the, the making. Is it Generations of the Making, I'm Brandon? so glad Brandon's here now. I expected oh, the robot so to process this quickly, so there you go. Plan Generations. So I'm going to forget it. I'm going to forget it like 10 seconds, in 10 seconds, so. Nine. And, <laughs> eight. All right. So, before we get on to the main topic, I want to talk a little about Space Marines. Now, this is not something that we talk about much, not Space Marines, but leaks. Um, we don't normally talk leaks on this episode, on this podcast. Uh, we keep it very, very, very infrequent, mostly because GW does listen to this podcast. And I like to focus more on factual stuff, things, concrete stuff that we do have, actually. However, there is one leak that I feel like we need to talk about, um, because it might possibly be one of the best stratagems GW has ever printed, uh, right up there with Vect. Uh, and that is, of course, the Salamander's Heroic Sacrifice believe is what the leak in the picture said yeah scary something like that yeah so, yeah uh and basically yes. if you haven't seen it already it is a salamander stratagem leak oh it could be fake i i don't think so 
Um, it's a, but it's a deep fake. It's, it's pornographic. <laughs> oh, oh, there's just a picture of like Eldar, an Eldar flyer just getting rammed. Oh. That's anyways, but it's, it's a salamander head instead. Pablo, <laughs> I love it. I'm on it today, guys. All right, uh, but basically, the what the strategy does, if you are unaware, is it, you basically pick a salamander's unit, uh, and then. All units within, so it doesn't say all set, about salamanders units or all space marine units. So all, all units, infantry, all, all infantry, infantry units yeah. within six inches of this unit cannot be shot at unless they are the closest unit and the closest visible unit. So basically, if you pick a unit, you have to shoot at that unit first. Your opponent has to shoot at that unit first instead of every other unit within six inches behind that unit. Now, where this gets really interesting, where GW definitely needs to answer some questions, is does this does, first off does it have to be any salamanders unit can be like like a crazy awesome you know super durable unit or whatever that's impossible to kill uh can it be a character which which is where obviously the controversy is because if you pick a character then all of a sudden you can't shoot the character if for example there are infiltrators or scouts in enclosed ruins hiding closer to you because of the way the character rule was written by gw and faq'd They've had several chances to change the character rule, but they've doubled down on it. So it can essentially, in a pretty common scenario, make your army unshootable to your opponent, uh, which which is obviously very, very powerful. Um, so uh, just a little bit of a PSA to those of you uh, listening. If that stratagem is, in fact, released that way with an FAQ, without an FAQ, um, there might be some very, very, very good Salamanders lists coming out when Salamanders do come out. Um, that you might have to learn how to deal with before the FAQ comes out, if they're even going to FAQ it. It's absolutely effing bananas. Yes. Some might say that it's going to start a flame war. <laughs> um, and, and here's the thing, right? There was also another article that came out today. Uh, Goonhammer, I think, uh, put out the article, and that's the math on how to kill an Iron Hands Leviathan Dreadnought. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious, it, isn't it's it? It's like... Yeah, it's something like even like a six thousand point warlord titan doesn't kill the Leviathan dreadnought like guaranteed in one turn. Like it's just it's nuts. Like a a, a Tawinar supremacy suit needs three turns on average to kill one Leviathan dreadnought with all the buffs they can get, right? Uh, assuming um, FAQ the FAQ goes one way or another uh, in terms of the having the damage and then subtracting the damage depending on how that stacks. Um, it's nuts. It's crazy. Uh, and then I feel like I'm saying it. I've said it every after every supplement. There's every supplement has so far released has something really really good. In it. Whether it's like Cronus one shotting like Orion gunships or White Scar's scouts taking out like vehicles with their AP one two damage attacks uh, on the charge, um, or or whatever, right? Or White Scar's charging you, you know, outflanking like assault centurions or whatever, right? There's just there's a lot. In every supplement so far, that's really, really good. Raven Guard um, redeploying, like, seven units at the beginning of the game, if yeah. they like? Uh, well, it's not redeploy, it's a movement, so it's not... Oh, uh, no, it's that's that infiltrate. Uh, they actually can, you know... You, they can it, deep strike. So Yeah, the, the, and, but they can, if you, you can set up a list that can redeploy seven units. Like, not yes. just, not just, uh, not just doing infiltrate and things like that. There's bonkers what Raven Guard can do for movement. Anyway, yes, everybody has hilarious combos. The one thing I do like about the Salamanders one, if they rein it in a little bit, is it actually is kind of the first time where you get a, an, like, you feel like a multi-faction option for a faction is worth it, uh, for Space mm-hmm. Marines. Because most of the other Space Marine codexes, the more you look into them and the, the synergies they have, the more you're like, 
well, I really don't know why I would ally anything else because I lose too much. Yeah. Um, this stratagem alone it can open up so many combos with other factions. Yeah, it, here's but you're right. Um, I don't know if they're going to leave it that way uh, because we already do have precedent in a similar stratagem that Guard had. If you remember almost two years ago now when the Guard Codex released, mm -hmm. they had the Take Cover stratagem, which didn't say specifically an Astromilitarium unit. It was just a friendly unit. You just give them plus one to the save. So people are immediately thinking like, oh, I'll give Gilliman plus one to his armor save, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they FAQ'd it so that it was only Astro Militarum, I believe Astro Militarum Infantry. Yeah, but if you uh, look at Custodes, they have a couple of stratagems that they work do. for Imperium uh, as a they whole. They do. Uh, but so, but they, do, they have the Imperium keyword, though, not just yeah. a unit in your army. And the thing about the Salamanders one, though, is it's very fluffy for who they are, yeah, right? Like true. the whole reason why that stratagem's in there is because they're the, the chapter that actually cares about other people. Yep. And and Correct. previously in the past we didn't have anything we didn't have anything that that kind of showed that off right because salamanders have always been kind of the dark horse unloved one of the dark horse unloved factions by GW um, so it, you're right I mean I think I think that that isn't too far of a reach um, I also don't think it's too far of a reach to assume that it might get FAQ'd to only be salamanders units who knows I mean think about Anyways. it from GW's perspective they're trying to make the game more fluffy and fun. And the fluffy aspect is the image of the salamanders stepping in the line of fire to protect their comrades. But rules as written, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that the salamanders are out of line of sight, their friends are in the open, and you still can't shoot them. So <laughs> the wording on the rule needs to be, in my opinion, changed to better reflect the, the fluffy aspect that was attempting to be what GW was making. So that, you know, the rules and the fluff are more correlated. But as it stands now, yeah, it's very abusable. And then uh, the article from Goonhammer was excellent at highlighting how traditional anti-tank weapons, even something like a volcano cannon on a Titan, doesn't take down Iron Hand's vehicles. So you have a faction now who all of the traditional counters to what they would bring don't work. So... Figuring out what the meta is going to look like when that list becomes popular is going to be very interesting. Yeah, and, and I think there are already some points in the comments below or in the comments uh, for that article um, that were kind of mirrored what I already thought, which was that um, what will kill those Iron Hands vehicles is high rate of fire AP1 weapons, um, possibly bolters. Uh, my aggressors were killing a lot of stuff just putting out fucking yeah, not just dice any bolters strength five bolters that are ap one or two yeah yeah Str strength five bolters strength five ap one bolters i think is fine unless the leviathan dreadnought gets plus one to its save through like cover um yep. ap one strength five bolters is perfectly fine and um, uh mortal wounds output like uh yep. siege breaker cohorts insurance if you can get in range before they die um uh, skyweaver jet bikes with haywire Talos with Haywire. You're going to have to put up mortal wounds on those yeah. things if you're going to take them down. Yeah, I and, think uh, I think going go into that sort of um, new meta, especially with the Space Marines, uh, terrain's also going to be very important as well. Look at the segue. I like this guy. Oh my god, beautiful transition. Uh, before we do that, one quick point. Remember, those repulsor executioners are about an inch off the ground, so you can shoot the characters. They don't block line of sight to the characters because the characters are on the ground and the repulsors float. So remember that, guys, when you're trying to end girls, when you're trying to kill those characters. Just model them for advantage. 
just lay him flat, <laughs> just lay him on the ground, or take a uh, take a, a Raven Guard um, Phobos captain with the uh, Caradron bolts or whatever the heck their crazy sniper bolts. Oh yeah, are. the Corvus yeah, bolts the, or whatever. Those yeah. things are so good. Yeah, yeah I love cool. those. You just out of line of sight, three damage on a character. Boom, so cool. Anyways, save all this stuff. All more of this stuff will happen when we talk about the Space Marines when all the supplements come out. But for now, those are little teasers. All right, terrain. Uh, the reason why I kind of came up with this episode um why i wanted to talk about this episode was twofold uh one we very rarely have two guests of peter's i'm sorry of scaris and brandon's caliber uh and peter as well peter (laughs) yeah peter counts this guy every time every time (laughs) man we have all these really good players we also (laughs) have peter you know we couldn't have done it just the two of us peter let's let's be honest no it's true i would i would have no idea what you're talking about i'd be like lionel (laughs) johnson trying to you know figure out somebody's emotions oh just wouldn't happen okay um so uh not only that but also when i played in the team tournament this past two weekends ago now uh terrain was such an important factor in deciding uh my matchups i we wouldn't have gotten tied tied for first place if we hadn't taken terrain into account with our matchups with my list my list was highly terrain dependent um, and even though I got my worst matchup five, four out of the five times we got paired, um, I won or I went three and two and did really well um, just because of the terrain that I was put on. Um, and so that was kind of part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this episode. Uh, we, you know, it's it's terrain is very, very important. And we're going to get into a point in for, competitive 40K now where tournaments are going to standardize terrain, uh, maybe not holistically or universally so like the lvo and the nova might not always have the same terrain but year to year is what i'm talking about so like the lgt will probably have standardized terrain year to year we have uh the atlanta that huge atlanta major coming up at the end of the year they already announced that they were going to have standardized terrain uh you've obviously got the lvo which doesn't have standardized terrain but does have its own flavor of terrain that if you've been to the lvo you understand you know what that means uh, and then of course we have nova of course which has been standardizing terrain for years and adepticon just upped their game with new terrain this past year um so terrain is going to get more and more important and as gw doesn't fix or doesn't acknowledge the terrain rules we're going to have more uh house rules terrain so terrain is just going to become very very important terrain Sorry start. to interrupt you there, Pete. Uh, uh, Pablo. The um, the I think you you hit the nail on the head there, being like uh, terrain GW needing to, like there was some keywords there needing to like define terrain, and and I think onus falls on TOs, organizers, and players to really sort of understand how terrain works for now until something like that happens. Yeah, and and I, I don't want to give too much away, um, but. There's definitely some field badsies that higher up players and people uh, have noticed about the terrain rules and about how players interact with the terrain rules, right? So um, without getting into specifics, basically terrain is going to be very important. Terrain has always been a very important aspect of competitive 40k, but I feel like now more than ever, it's important to be able to look at a table of terrain, not just at the table when you set up, but also in the future, six months from now, when you're planning for an event. So if you're planning on going to the Las Vegas Open, for example, it's important to look at tables of terrain and analyze how they affect your list positively and negatively, which is what the point of this episode is. So let's talk terrain. Uh, first and foremost, um, I, I want to get I want I kind of want to pick Brandon Peters and Scarry's minds on this. Um, we'll just use your most commonly used recent tournament list or or the list you would plan on taking to a tournament. 
um, if you were to plan on going to like the SoCal Open uh, at the end of next month. Uh, when you go into it, explain briefly what your list is. You don't need to go into detail. Um, and then talk about what terrain you want and what terrain, terrain you kind of want to avoid. Uh, and then from there, we'll go on and we'll expand. And then we're going to start with uh, Brandon. Okay. So I, as a designer in my real life, I always like to take things to extremes. So what if the table had zero terrain? What would be the best models and what would be the best lists? And it'd be like, okay, well, if there's no terrain, I can take plenty of vehicles because vehicles don't worry about terrain. I can take plenty of long range guns. Um, melee that has to walk across the board becomes awful, uh, especially because nobody's going to have a cover save. So, yeah, you really skew the game in favor of vehicles, and you skew the game in favor of long-range shooting, and you skew the game in favor of arrive-from-reserves-reliable-charging-melee units. Um, and if you go the other way, and you have lots and lots of line-of-sight blocking, impeding movement terrain like ruins, well... Vehicles are terrible unless they have the fly keyword. Then they're actually amazing again, because per the written rules for wobbly model in tournaments anyway, uh, it's totally acceptable to place your flying model on the top of the wall, even though the wall is anywhere between an eighth of an inch and two inches in width, depending on the terrain you're using, um, which gives you a huge advantage in movement because things without the fly keyword can't move up for free like fly can and on top of that infantry keyword becomes really good because they also interact so well with terrain and then short range guns become better and paradoxically um movement is actually still very important so slower units are okay but on a high terrain board fast melee units that start on the board are ridiculously good because you can move them all into a piece of terrain, the best piece of terrain, that's preferably centrally located on your table, and do what I'm going to call threat, which is you can't shoot in this building unless you have indirect fire or spells that don't require line of sight, um, but I am threatening from this building whatever my movement plus advances and all my abilities are and my charge roll. So um, I recently faced um, Chaos, for example, and Chaos has the warp time ability, and when you have a warp time available on a unit that's hiding in a ruin and can just bust out of there and get into your face, it's very difficult to deal with that as a shooting army. So these units become really, really good with terrain, and most of the time there's a weird mix in events like the SoCal Open, where sometimes there's no ruins. There's hardly any line of sight blocking terrain at all. There might be some hills or some large line of sight blocking, but no L-shaped things. But in general, there are L-shaped things which you can hide your units in. So you kind of, you're, they're trying to encourage, in my opinion, a variety of lists to show up. Um, but ultimately, the models that really benefit the most from terrain are, do you have the fly keyword? Um, do you have good movement with the infantry keyword? Do you like to punch people in melee? Uh, that's what your list should be built around. So it's vehicles with fly, infantry keyword, melee units. All right. Um, that that was all very good general 
advice, and I hope you had your notepads out. I know I did. Um, uh, Scary, you play a, a lot of flyers, or a lot of models to fly keyword, generally, not always, um, but you have been known just to sling a ven- venom or two onto the table. Um, are there any pieces of terrain that you're kind of worried about as a person who runs a lot of venoms, or, or is pretty much what Brandon said good, where you, you're pretty much good on all the terrain because you have so many venoms when you use your venom list? So the list that I use relies more on having line of sight blocking terrain, not necessarily the type of terrain that's on the table. I have things that can go into, like, for example, the, quote, magic boxes like mandrakes or witches to flush things out of the of inside of the terrain. I have uh, Void Raven bombers that can bomb things into submission. Um, and I and I can fly so they can get put up on top of ruins or on floors or up and down or can move over things. So the the amount of terrain or the type of terrain isn't as impactful to my army as a very fast mobile force as it is needing places to hide behind so for for example for my army it's more important for me to have things that can block line of sight it doesn't really necessarily matter what they are i just need to be able to hide against certain lists so i don't just get blown off the table Okay. Does it matter where the line of sight blocking is? Because, in, for example, on Nova, you have your two L-shaped ruins that are offsetting each other um, in the center, uh, which which obviously makes um, going closer to the board safer in terms of if you need to hide out of line of sight. Um, is that better or worse for your army, do you think? Uh, it depends, really. It's all relative to who's going first, who's going second, who has a plus one. Uh, are you playing Dawn of War? Are you playing... Um table quarters you're playing vanguard strike you know especially with the nova style terrain with the l's uh if you're say going second and deploying second it's easier to use the l's to your advantage kind of being able to look at lines of fire and then kind of deploying in sort of like a narrow cone or area sort of like even if it's far back from the l that can kind of help you mitigate some incoming firepower to then move into the the safety of those like big L structures. Uh, However, going first is always better to move into those defensible positions. And Venoms themselves are relatively small. So even like a three inch tall wall, the blocks line of sight will will hide a variety of Venoms if you kind of clump them all together. So uh, the Nova style, I like a lot, and those L's really help me. I like, I, I really like that Nova style, but I prefer the, um, the style of terrain that we saw at the um, London GT, which had two larger sort of hills in the middle that you could also sort of hide infantry behind, and then smaller L-shaped sort of like ruins in each corner uh, that you could also, I could use to hide like Reaver jet bikes behind or Venoms and things like that as well. Yeah. And the L-shaped ruins in, in the deployment zone, or in the corners and the edges, really help uh, gunline armies, obviously, because you know you can hide behind them if you have indirect line of fire, or if you have things that don't necessarily want to get shot off the board turn one, uh, and you want to play more of a defensive game uh, in terms of like a, a faster, more offensive game, they're great for that. Um, they're also good for armies that like to have a lot of cheap units that you don't want to die, just hide out of line of sight and just sit on an objective. Uh, they're really good for that because then those units don't die. So speaking of line of sight, I think that's a really important topic if you're trying to survive some shooting alpha strike list. Um, The type of terrain and how tall it is and how wide it is is extremely important. So for example, if you're facing a list with a lot of knights, knights are super tall. 
and they can move 12 inches or 10 inches and still shoot to full effect. So against a knight army like a Castellan, if you have vehicles and you're trying to hide them turn one, it can actually be very difficult to hide ordinary vehicles from a Castellan that can move forward 10 inches turn one and get an angle on you, because the knight just brings the high ground with it wherever it goes. Um, so certain armies are much better at ignoring line of sight blocking terrain versus your big models than others. Or, for example, um, vehicles that are hovering. So the Repulsor Executioner, for example, is how many inches off the table? Maybe four and a half, five inches off the table. And it can fly and move 10 inches horizontally, which means if there's any tall terrain on your board, it can move on top of that terrain during its movement phase and basically ignore line of sight blocking terrain. Uh, unless you're a really short model, like, say, an infantry squad. But vehicles and monsters are generally tall enough that quite a few shooting armies in the game can completely negate your line of sight blocking, especially if they have that fly keyword and a decent movement characteristic, which Dark Eldar are excellent for, for example. Yeah. Now, that is true, uh, and then we're going to get to Peter in a second. Uh, but I'd like to add that, in general, um, those you know, those units and models will have to get a little closer than they would normally um, to be able to get those angles on you. Uh, so if you have fast, possibly fly keyword melee units or counter uh, counter attack units um, that can take advantage of that slow unit, i.e. like aggressors or um, custodes, jet bike captains did that really well with uh, the guard soup castellan list back in the day, um, you can take advantage of your opponent having to get closer to shoot your gun line to see over that line of sight building. So you might just, you know, keep that in mind when you're building your list. If you're trying to build a static gun line list for for a tournament that has those those L shapes in your deployment zone. Just, um, but anyways, yeah. uh, my, Peter, my point question. being, um, just in summary, 10 seconds, my point being, if you're building an army to benefit from terrain, I still think that smaller models and particularly models with infantry and fly keywords together are the best units for taking advantage of terrain just because they're the easiest to hide and they pretty much ignore terrain all right peter same question however i want to add a little extra uh do you think that there's any particular set of terrain or pieces of terrain that benefit space marine lists as we see them. So I'm talking specifically about the repulsor executioner lists. Um, although you can take the like space marine infantry spam lists, uh, which are basically like intercessors and things, aggressors and things um, that space marines benefit from uh, or that you've seen. So I think going into a like an iron hand style repulsor spam list um, terrain that like Brandon said, like basically everything in that list, um, other than maybe the one or two dreadnoughts they're going to run is going to have the fly keyword um, or it's going to be embarked on something with the fly keyword most of the time. Um, so it's going to be so easy for them to hop up onto walls, hop up onto uh, pieces of terrain to get those better vantage points. Um, it's just something that's... a. Uh, I don't think I think the more terrain, the better for a lot of these lists, even though it doesn't sound like it would be. It's just because those repulsors are so fast um, I've been looking at some of the lists people have been posting triple triple repulsor with like double stormhawk and then a couple redemptor or invictor dreadnoughts. They're not even using the Leviathan because they want the 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 backfield punch more than the uh, the Leviathan shooting since they get so much out of the rest of their models. 
Um, like that stuff, uh, it's just super deadly. And they want, if you get close, you're dealing with all that Overwatch. Um, yeah, I really think that uh, the more terrain, the better is the way to go with most Marine lists. You look at the Ultramarine lists with the aggressors, um, even though they can move and shoot with uh, no penalty any longer once they get into that uh, tactical doctrine, um, you still want walls that they can kind of Kool-Aid man through, right? So that you oh. don't take that first uh, round of fire before you move up and then just blow everybody away. Um, most of my lists, like my favorite lists to run are combat heavy, you know, infantry based lists. I love my blood angels still. Um, it's kind of why I'm fooling around a lot with Raven guard because they're just better blood angels in almost every way other than the plus one to wound. Um, but everything else, uh, all of their movement shenanigans are so good. Um, but in those lists, I really need a lot of terrain because like you can jump around all you want. But when your jumps are done, if you're standing out in the open, your opponent's just going to blow all your important stuff out of the out of the water, right? Even with you know a minus one to hit or you know always in cover, doesn't make a difference in uh, in the game we're currently playing. So you need um, you know Nova L's or something that you can hop behind when you're doing all these redeploy shenanigans and deep striking and infiltrating, etc. And it's really interesting because, you know, each event and whatnot will have a different style of terrain that they use and all the different, but no matter what event you are, we're starting to see standard pieces for tournament play. Um, like the Nova L is probably one of the more iconic sort of like nomenclature pieces where like, this is a Nova L. So if you say that, most people understand what that means. And then another thing would be like uh, frontline gaming magic box. Right, like yeah. the the building that has like the two fl the two stories. It's about you know six inches by six inches or eight inches by eight inches or whatever, and it's that sort of like magic box. And those are pieces that we I feel maybe we shouldn't have like a standardized format. But and we this is a topic for a whole other discussion. Should we or should we not standardize terrain? I feel like there should be set pieces that mean certain things standardized across tournaments, and that a tournament itself should have probably I want to say. 10 different styles of table um, a, amongst the whole tournament that kind of give you different strategic options based on like, you know, whatever. I, I agree, Scary. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. There are specific pieces of terrain that you do see tournament to tournament that are played the same. The L-shaped ruin is another very common one that you see at tournaments. And that's usually an a ruin in an L-shape, usually with three floors, but not always. Sometimes it's two floors uh, and that can go anywhere. Um, and that's uh, uh, not like the Novell, which is one solid wall. There's no levels on a, on a Novell. And I think the Novell, you can't put stuff on top of anymore. I think they specifically you cannot. said that. Yeah. yeah, that this year they couldn't. Um, so an L-shaped ruin is something you would be able to put things on top of. Um, but usually an L-shaped ruin is lower. The Novell is really high. Um, there's also, like you said, the enclosed ruin or the magic box, which when we're talking about a magic box, guys and, and gals, if you don't know what we're talking about, Basically, a magic box is a ruin that is surrounded by walls on all four sides, so you can't see into it. And then the top of it is enclosed completely with a roof. So if you were a vehicle, you wouldn't be able to go inside of it. So an infantry could essentially hide inside of it without being charged or shot at uh, by things that cannot go into ruins. Um, and so that's why it's called a magic box, because the infantry unit can magically hide in there uh in its box despite the fact that there's like four knights standing right outside like waiting to kill it All right so that's that's what that's the point of the magic box 
Uh, I have a um, story about that. Uh, so oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Brandon. Magic Boxes actually won me the SoCal Open last year. So that was the game where um, I was playing against Matt and his Eldar, and I gave him first turn, and I was running a Knight Castellan, and he killed it turn one. Um, and then the rest of his army had so much firepower, I really couldn't cross the board to get close to him. And he also had two Shining Spears with Yanari units. But I ended up winning because of Magic Boxes, and he didn't have infantry that were worth anything that could go inside the magic boxes and my infantry were all more than one inch away from the walls near objectives so it was very hard for him to get rid of my last few models and it ended up giving me the chance to come back and it ended up working out my favor so when we're talking about magic boxes and whether they're viable or not right now they're here to stay and it's a very important thing to to think about when you're building your list is what happens if there's a magic box right on the center objective in this mission? Do I have enough firepower or damage outside of that box to just win the game anyway? Or should I take infantry units that can go inside that building and clear it out? Uh, preferably punchy ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I think this is actually a really great segue uh, into uh, the next part of this discussion, um, which is what to do when you come up to the table. Um, so we're going to start this from the beginning. You you go to a tournament, you lay your army down. Um, now, uh, we'll probably talk about this later in the uh, Patreon questions. However, where you put your army and where you set up can be very important because in general, uh, players tend to... I've seen players that are more casual tend to pick the side that they set up on and not necessarily the side that's best for their army. Now, it doesn't always happen. Uh, because sometimes you get really good players who are aware of what terrain um, they, it works well for their army and what terrain setups that they want, but not always. Um, so one bad habit that I think that if you're listening to this podcast, you should probably get out of if you do do it, is to make sure you don't get too comfortable. <laughs> he said do-do again. <laughs> uh Make sure you don't get too comfortable when you set up. Uh, be prepared to move to the opposite side. Be prepared to look at the table logically and um, subjectively to pick the best side for you, no matter where you're, where you think you want to set up. So um, don't get too comfortable, uh, and then also don't don't be afraid to ask your opponent to move and switch sides. You know, uh, your opponent's already spent all the time to and energy to move. They can move an extra five feet if you want their side of the table. And if they get mad at you, like, you're at a tournament. Whatever. They paid for it. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Come yeah, on, dude. Punch him right in the dick. <laughs> don't, don't do that. But there's but nothing in the code of conduct <laughs> for that yet. They shouldn't, they shouldn't get your Playing Warhammer competitively at all levels of the game, including dick punching your opponent. The dirty level. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> the um, dirtiest of levels. <laughs> uh, also, on the flip side, um, there's a way to take advantage of that. If you were a more, a lot more savvy players will set up on the side that they want just to, just in case they know that, or in case their opponent is one of those people who doesn't necessarily care about the side that they want. Um, so that they, they kind of gives them a slight edge in the side that they want. Right. So if you're like Mr. Sean Naden, you'll set up on the side that you want. Sorry, Sean, I'm calling you out. Um, kind of, uh, set up on the side that you want. Um, which maybe might give you a slightly higher percentage chance of getting that side because your opponent might not ask you to move for models. Um, so, anyways. Yeah, can I talk to that for really quick? My suggestion yeah, sure, is sure, to ahead, be, not to do that because it feels a little weird. 
my suggestion is to be aware that your opponent might be doing that and plan accordingly. Yes, absolutely. You should, and also, don't let your opponent, like, like I said, don't be afraid to ask your opponent to move. Um, look at it subjectively and look at the side that's best possible for your army. Now, how you figure that out, that's what we're going to talk about. So, you go up to the table. Um, hopefully, by this point, you've kind of, you kind of have an idea of what units perform in your army perform well in specific pieces of terrain. So, if you have, for example, if you look at my army, if I have an out of line of sight shooting whirlwind Scorpius, I'm immediately looking for places to hide my whirlwind Scorpius. I would prefer non ruins, uh, things that that uh, completely block my whirlwind Scorpius from all shots except for. Uh, when a knight wants to get really, really close, so my counter assault units can kill it, um, or my bolters or whatever, um, I'm specifically looking for it to be able to shoot all game, where it can hide and shoot all game. Um, preferably, uh, you know, a, an L-shaped ruin closer to the center of the board, so that the 48-inch range can hit my opponent's backfield. However, that might not always be the case, and that might not always be the case for you. Um, so I want to give you some general advice for your army. Um, so. The first thing is objectives. Uh, look at the mission you're playing. Where are objectives going to go? Uh, now, if you're playing ITC, also be aware that objectives do have to be moved if there are enclosed ruins. So if you're going to the SoCal Open uh, and there is a, a magic box in the center of the board, you're actually going to move that magic box the smallest distance so that it's off of that center objective, whether it's left, right, front, back. Um, and if you and if you don't um, if you don't know if your opponent's shifted the the box, you can call a judge. Um, if you feel like your opponent is shifting it to their advantage, which can sometimes happen unintentionally or intentionally, um, you can always cast call a judge, or you can center that enclosed magic box directly on the center of the table and just roll randomly to see what direction it goes. Don't use a scatter die. Those are dead. No, no, do it. Do it. <laughs> just bring a scatter die just for that. Um, but just to be completely, die. just be completely fair. Right, just roll which direction that magic box will go, and then move it that way, um, because you do have to move it the shortest possible distance. Uh, and for those of you who've been in that scenario, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about if I'm not explaining it correctly. Um, so uh, once you've moved all magic boxes and all ruins so that objectives aren't wholly within them, uh, then you can start looking at which objectives are easiest to take. Uh, you generally want to focus on objectives that are within or or can be hidden easily by terrain. So like think like an objective in an L-shaped ruin. You won't have to move that objective because it's in the L-shaped ruin. It's still accessible because it's not a magic box. Uh, but the unit hiding in that building has a very good chance of just holding on that objective in all game because they probably won't get shot, depending on your army. Um, also, you want to measure how far objectives are from ruins in particular, but from anything because this game is a true line of sight and true measurement game. So if an objective is uh, two inches away from the edge of a ruin, and that three-inch bubble extends one inch out, then technically a unit holding or unit can hold that objective, even though it's outside of the building. If that makes sense. So because there's three inches to every objective to hold it. So the reverse can also be true. If an objective is right on the wall of a magic box, for example, that you can a unit can hold that objective three inches into the magic box, but still be one inch away from the edge, so it can't be charged. So that objective is a strong objective for an infantry model to hold, because then, especially an objective secured infantry model, because that model can hold that objective even if there's a billion knights on the other side of the wall. 
If those knights don't have objective secured, that single scout model is holding that objective no matter how many knights there are because the knights can't shoot the scout and they can't go in and charge the scout. I know it sounds dumb, but that is just the way the rules for terrains work for now. It's just, we don't, we don't make the game, we just gotta play the game. Um, and then, uh, finally, um, once you've identified all that, you want to look at terrain placement rules. So, uh, not only if moving enclosed ruins off of objectives, there might be entire, or there might be entire tournaments where you have to place the terrain yourself. You definitely want to prioritize the terrain that you pick or that, that works best for your army, but also you want to prioritize the terrain that can hold objectives better too. So you might want to steal a magic box for yourself if there's magic box and player place terrain. Um, and I actually don't have a lot of experience with that. So um, Skari, Brandon, or Peter, if, if you guys have ever played with uh, player place terrain, is there any other tips in there that I might be missing? So the biggest thing is when you get up to the table, define the terrain with your opponent. Oh, you know, that's probably... What, sorry? <laughs> Oh, I was just about to get to that, but yes. Haha. That, well, that let's have been skip the over that. But 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 that's probably number one thing. But if you're if you're like player place terrain or whatnot, you know, yes, you want to set up the terrain. If it looks like a piece has been moved because somebody put their display board on the table or something like that, don't don't just come up to a table and see like all the ruins kind of clumped up in the middle and all the forests like all skewed, and then go, oh man, well this is not even. You know, I hope I get that side. No, like uh, you know, one of the key things of getting up to the table is adjust terrain as necessary and discuss terrain with your opponent. If there's an equal number of pieces on the table and you can kind of see what's going on, it's very easy to just go, okay, this should be here, this should be here. And if not, pull a judge over and go, hey judge, how is this table set up at the beginning of the tournament? Can you please just set it up uh, quickly so that I, so that, you know, we just, that we can have a fair game from the beginning. Well, one thing, one little quick anecdote, kind of like a, a rant, if you will, is um, one year at the Las Vegas Open, um, when I was judging, so this is back when I helped judge the LVO, not actually, um, you know, sell things in the secondhand shop and whatnot uh, and help run the event. Uh, there was a player who sat down, they both the player and his opponent sat down at a snow table and right next to the snow table was a lava table, right? So two and both sets of terrain matched their respective mats and tables. So there was clearly snow terrain. There's clearly lava terrain. Like it was very, very distinct. So the player in the snow table sets his display board down, looks at it. And says very loudly, very obviously so that I could hear, man, this terrain sucks. It's so uneven. I don't know what to do. So I go kind of hover over this terrain, look at it. And yeah, the, the guy's side that he got deployed on didn't have a single ruin in it whatsoever. It was basically his opponent had a ruin and, uh, and there weren't magic boxes at the time. This, but his opponent had a ruin in like a line of sight blocker and he had like a bowling lane. It was bad. And I looked over at the lava table, and one of the opponents had a big white building with snow on it, just chilling on his side of the corner, the same corner that was closest to the snow table. So I look over at his opponent and say, hey, does that table, do you think that table belongs on your, on your, or that train belongs on your table? His opponent was like, no, I was wondering why I was here. I was like, oh. So I just grabbed it, put it over onto the snow table, and was like, there you go. Uh, the point of that being, you were in charge of your own fun, as has been said by, uh, famous member of this podcast um and you should always try to do the best you can to make sure that the game is competitive and fair for both of you so don't don't be a victim um that's kind of the point of that anecdote there uh but yeah so like sorry said show up to the table adjust and define terrain uh, make sure you and your opponent do that um don't just assume that a piece of terrain is a hill 
instead of a ruin or vice versa. You should always clarify that with your opponent because players come from different backgrounds and play in different communities where people do play terrain differently. Not only that, but players have been playing for a lot longer than you sometimes. Yes. And they've been playing since like second edition or Rogue Trader, where in some editions hills gave cover and in other editions, you know, like your forests block line of sight. And it's just good to make sure everyone's on the same page <laughs> so that it doesn't matter what the rules are for the route, the terrain, as long as you know what set of rules you're using for the terrain before you get started on your game. In my day, the jetbikes used to roll dice every time they went into a tree, and on a one, they died. That's how I feel. <laughs> mm. uh, playing Warhammer Fantasy, that uh, sparks some really terrible memories for me. <laughs> um, yeah, and the other thing is, make sure that you read that player packet, because oftentimes nowadays they have specified what what terrain is what, so you don't just make it up with your opponent. And also so you don't get caught out by somebody that says, you know, well, that's a crater or whatnot to get a certain benefit that maybe that uh, event isn't even using. Um, so that's another key thing to mm. keep in mind is get that player packet memorized because a lot of them now are adding terrain aspects. Yeah. Um, so let, let's go ahead and talk. Um, well, I, I actually want to mention one more thing and then we'll go into kind of more strategy stuff. Um, and that's finally is, uh, remember 40 K eighth edition is a true line of sight game. It is. So other than the first level on ruins blocking line of sight, um, if in the ITC, a lot of it is true line of sight, um, unless there's any of the rules thing others, which means um, when you're going in there and you're looking at terrain, you want to make sure to get to your model's level. Even if you look like a weirdo, stoop down, look at firing lanes, look at where models can shoot. If there's a lip or something like that on a ruin and you want to put models on top of it, make sure that the models two ranks in to that level can still see down and shoot the things that they can. Uh, models do block line of sight for each other. So just... You always want to get to know your table. Where are the windows? Where are, can a knight conceivably see into a magic box through a window? Um, how high up are the ruins? How are the hills? Can the hills block line of sight? Where do the hills block line of sight? Are the hills rounded so that it's easier to kind of move around the hill and see things behind it? Or are they more wall or more plateau shaped where um, it's a lot harder to see? Just look at things like that. Look at edges. Look at angles. Do your geometry homework. Um, but you definitely want to take that time to look at everything. And you don't want to assume anything either, of course. Um, and then one PSA, if you are uh, if you go to a tournament and you see a weird piece of terrain or a weird table, maybe it's like Eldar themed and there's spires everywhere and giant spikes and weird stuff, and you have no idea what's going on, don't, don't try to do any of that. Just go to the TO and ask them how they intended this table to be played. Um, because I've seen some wonky, wonky stuff. Also, the Tower if, of Doom. Yeah. <laughs> also, if you're a TO, try your best to keep like normal terrain on the on a competitive table. Like narrative terrain is cool, but if you've got like waterfalls coming out of like spiked armor things, I don't know, random Eldar spires and just weird looking terrain that no one's ever played on, it might look really cool, but it might not be playable you know, um, so, or functional. Uh, so just, you know, just keep that in mind if you're a TO when you're deciding to train for your event. I've seen some truly egregious stuff. Also, Frontline Game is responsible for some really awkward terrain as well, so we're not completely innocent there. All right. So uh, let's go and talk about uh, what we're going to do um, when we've established terrain 
uh, defined it with our opponent, and then we've decided if the terrain is favorable to our army, uh, or if our if the terrain is not favorable to our army. And because I imagine most people want to hear the not favorable of the army, we're going to start with that. And I want to start with Brandon. So Brandon, in general, if the terrain is not favorable to your army, when you come to the table, what are some factors that people need to keep in mind when they deploy and when they play the game out? If the terrain isn't favorable. Well... I kind of bring a middle-of-the-road style army most of the time, so I have some melee, some shooting, that sort of thing. But I also tend to play armies that are pretty slow on the whole, that don't need to get to you very quickly most of the time. Um, so it really depends on the matchup. Like, let's say I'm playing a Tau matchup, and there's really no line-of-sight blocking terrain in the center of the board. That's probably not good. Um, so even in the army planning phase... That's kind of a test that I have for any army list is ahead of time, what am I going to do on planet bowling ball against an, a Tau army um, or vice versa? Um, what am I going to do on magic box theater against a really heavy melee army? Um, what's my plan? And um, if you have that plan during the list building phase, that's the best advice I can give you. Um, because there's been some games where, especially against Chaos, you can have a game where the only thing that you have line of sight to the whole game is minus two to hit four up in Vol Plague Bearers. And if you're relying on shooting to get rid of them, it's going to take a long time if you're not built the right way. So, I don't know. Um, let's talk about, I guess, the concept of initiative then. Because I think that the terrain factors nicely into that equation. So initiative is... Which player, if nothing changed, would win? And if we're on planet bowling ball and I'm playing a Tau player, the Tau player is going to win the game if I never leave my deployment zone because I have no line of sight blocking, um, no cover, especially with smart missiles. He's just going to delete me from the board. So I have the initiative versus a Tau player because they're going to outshoot me. And if I don't change how the game is being played generally by getting closer to them, then I'm going to lose. So I need to have options on Planet Bowling Ball for closing with an enemy quickly. Classically, this year, my strategy has been bring chimeras, because chimeras I can move in advance um, and get closer to the Tau player and start really getting close enough to actually do things. So for example, if the Tau player is filling a line of sight blocking piece of terrain with drones, at the very least, I can try to fix some bayonets and charge the drones and get rid of them rather than just say, well, I guess I'll die. And on the other hand, um, if I'm playing magic box theater again and I'm versus a heavy melee army that I can't shoot, my opponent has the initiative because if I just stay in my zone, I'm still going to win the game. They can't actually hurt me until they get close to me. So then it's a matter of, okay, I need to be very careful about pre-measuring distances. And in the case of a guard player, I don't have anything fast to respond to him, so I just play very, very defensively in terms of um, creating multiple concentric rings of screens, um, trying to create a situation where the only way this player can get to me is in the open, so that I have a chance to shoot them at some point and try to win the game that way. Um, anything anyone would like to add? No, I think that pretty much nails it. Like, like I said, as a person that uh, 
thrives and loves uh, close combat uh, infantry armies. Um, there are it's it, everything that I do when I like when I walk up to a table. It's the first thing I do is examine the terrain and try and figure out a strategy. Um, even at the list building stage, just like you, I like to look, think down and, and say, okay, so if I walk up to a table and there's like two ruins on it, what am I doing? How am I handling the situation? Um, what stratagems am I going to need to use? Like, is there a bush that I can fucking hide behind for two seconds? Uh, just to maybe get that plus one cover, depending on the scenario, um, to just make the odds a little bit better in my favor. Um yeah, I, I, the one thing I hate the most is is seeing somebody say that they lost a game due to the terrain, um, because I th- I really would like to believe that that in most events now, especially big events, um, you should know what you're getting into when you're going. You should know that you know FLG has magic boxes, so you should have something kind of strategy that you, if in case you go up on one of those tables that has one on how you're going to deal with that. Um, same with if you go to Nova, all of their tables are the same. You have to have a strategy for that terrain. You don't go just walk in blind. Um, yeah, that's all I gotta yeah. say. Uh, one other thing I want to add to all that, which is all great stuff, by the way, um, is that sometimes uh, people tend to focus more on terrain than they should. Um, so in terms of like movement, for example, I-, I see a lot of players oftentimes they'll move units into terrain instead of just directly at their opponent or directly towards an objective. Um, you know, don't always try to fight for every cover save you can possibly get to get for your army or every line of sight. Sometimes you just need to ignore the terrain, um, which kind of leads me to my bigger point and Brandon's point of initiative. Um, if then this sucks, this is, this is very counterintuitive. If you, if so the terrain doesn't favor your army positively, sometimes you need to just line up on the deployment zone edge and just bum rush your opponent. Just ignore the terrain as best you can. Um, and just present all the shooting options available to your opponent and hope they make a mistake. And I know that that sucks. Um, but, Top players do it often, right? Uh, just last year, um, one of the Nova, maybe not, maybe two years ago, um, it was it was the pajamas. It was two years ago. Um, two top players of the Nova Finals, basically whoever went first won. They both knew it, so they both lined up on the edge. One player rolled off. He went first, and although his opponent conceded, you don't want to do that. Um, both players knew that whoever went first wins, so the both players just went all in and hoped that they went first. Um, and that's a viable strategy. Sometimes in certain matchups, on certain missions against certain armies, you just need to hope you go first. And in those cases, when you do need to hope to go first, and you do go first, you want the best possible setup for your army. So instead of trying to squeeze every last plague bearer into the tiniest piece of terrain on your deployment zone, you know, expecting to go second, just put them all up first, and then you know, hopefully your opponent can't kill them all. Yeah. You know, maybe your opponent rolls poorly. Yeah, to Peter's Pete. Pablo's point um, when you have the initiative it's time to start taking risks yeah. because again if you don't change the game state you will lose that's what having the initiative means but on the other hand if the terrain really does favor you and you don't have the initiative and you're or the terrain doesn't favor you and you don't have the initiative because your opponent needs to come to you play very conservatively I've learned that even when something has a 5% chance of happening eventually it will happen so try and make plays that are as close to 100% reliable, low risk as possible that keep the game state the same, which is in your favor. And eventually you'll pull through. 
Now, something I wanted to add was when you're looking at a table and the terrain's not favorable to you, a lot of the times you don't need as much terrain as you might think. So you might have been very comfortable with the terrain that you practice with or whatever, but you have to get good at understanding what pieces in your army are critical to the success of your plan uh, later in the game, not just on that first turn. So even with limited amount of terrain, being able to hide key models or one or two key units, that can be the difference between winning and losing instead of just despairing and going, ah, crap, you know, I can't hide everything that I could usually hide, for example. Yeah, that's that well, well said. Um, I don't really have anything else to add to this subject. I feel like we, we covered most of it. Unfortunately, there isn't a ton you can do if the terrain is... I have one thing to add to that, Ooh, though. Go ahead, Scary. If you are worried that there will not be enough terrain, bring your own terrain. AKA bring something like a bastion or an imperial bunker or the or a chimera or a chimera, right? Yeah. Uh, you can create your own walls that block line of sight. You can, you know, there's there's a lot of different things you can do. I've seen recently some lists with like centurions and bastions or whatever, you know, that that just so that people can you do, they don't get shot off the board on the first turn. So there's specific things you can do strategically that allow you to build a strategy around at least I know I'm going to have this, and that can be useful um, in the list building phase as well. Yeah, and um, uh, one thing that I did see people use often that I don't know, I'm kind of surprised uh, people moved away from was the idea of gene stealers in like a bastion or a building. You just stick as many of them as you can in that bastion. The bastion will die eventually, but those gene stealers will get out three inches and then double move with like the swarm lord if the swarm lord survives. Let's be honest, um, and then advance and then get in your opponent's line, and that might be all you your army needs. So like Scarry said, bring your own terrain, be creative. Um, and then uh, to the Chimera point, I, which I really want to drive home, uh, sometimes dedicated transports or vehicles or weird models like that might seem suboptimal uh, and inefficient points-wise, um, but if they do a good job of keeping your army alive or keeping your critical units alive, they're worth it, right? Because without them, your your army wouldn't function. You'll lose because your, your value units will shop the board. Um, so, you know, uh, just keep that in mind. All right. Um, now, uh, I don't think we need to mention much about what to do if the terrain is favorable. I believe if the terrain is favorable, I think it's the and you know it and you've identified it for your army. I think the best piece of advice is just to be patient and hold um, stick to your guns. Like try not to leave the favorable terrain or try not to take initiative um, if you're going through the initiative idea. Try not to take initiative if your opponent already has the initiative. You know, so don't try to take risks or anything crazy. Um, is there anything else you, you all want to add to that? Beautiful. No. <laughs> um, no, not really. I think, uh, you know, in practice, just practice, 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 yep. and understand how the terrain interacts with the models in your army. You know, what can go up levels, what can't go up levels. You know, what can go through walls, what cannot go through walls. How do you stop your opponent from going through walls, funneling lanes. You can use terrain for all that stuff, but that's more like specific tactical stuff in yeah. game. Yeah, right on. Uh, the one pro tip um, that I found out recently if you can stick your space marine whirlwind scorpiuses inside or or anything but specifically those inside buildings um you can you can start a vehicle in a magic box if it can fit 
Uh, though I just can't leave the box. So just remember that. I, I found that out. Um, I should have already known it. Seems kind of obvious. But anyways, just a little pro tip for anyone who wants one roll when Scorpius is. All right. Um, so uh, I think that's pretty much it. I think we can move on to the Facebook questions unless there's anything you all wanted to add. All right. Um, so at the end of every episode, we like to talk, uh, we like to answer questions from the patrons about the topic on hand. Uh, this week, there's a lot of really good on-top topical questions that the patrons ask, so I'm really excited to get to them. If you would like to ask us questions to answer at the end of every episode, uh, you can join the Patreon, patreon.com slash chapter tactics, a $5 a month donation. Uh, we'll get you access to the Facebook group where you can post the questions every Monday uh, and where we'll answer them live on the show. Um, all right. So the first question is from Mr. Kelsey. Uh, have you ever chose to deploy on the side of the table that your opponent is standing on because the terrain seemed favorable? Yes. 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 Whenever I can. There's no shame in that. Yeah. All the time. 100. I sometimes do it just to mess with my opponent if I know them. I'm like, I want you to move all your shit on this side. <laughs> I've sometimes deployed, displayed, or put my display board right next to my opponent and just stood shoulder to shoulder with them. And if I'm if I'm feeling really competitive, I'll pull the Sean Naden thing. I've I've definitely actively done that, or I've come to a game, looked at the table, and then just dropped my movement, my like all my trays on the side I wanted, just to see what would happen, you know. And uh, it does work. There's so many people that'll just say, "Okay, yeah, I think these will work because I don't want to move," and you say, "Awesome," because that was the point. Right on. And okay. Then you win. <laughs> and then you win. That's it. That's the key. Every time. All right, uh, patron Thomas wants to know why do players get so butthurt over how you paint your Space Marines? Ooh, this is a little controversial. Um, they don't. Does that mean putting paint on Space Marines? How you paint your Space Marines? I so I believe that a little I, more context. I understand. Yeah, I understand yeah. what he means. It's like white scars being white scars, Ultramarines yeah, yeah. being Ultramarines. Yes. Um. So I don't know. I would hesitate to call the people who complain about the actual paint schemes players quote-unquote more than like more than like fluff bunnies but i understand that there are some competitive players who also uh don't like it, it rubs them the wrong way and uh, i don't, I don't think i don't think you should like you can't just say that because they like it they're not players or like I it was just a like joke. that's what i yeah okay i'm gonna shut up now brandon yeah <laughs> my thoughts would be when i see someone who's put a lot of effort into how their army is modeled and painted i don't really care what their color scheme is their army look looks great and it's fun to play against so if they're playing purple marines and they're saying they're running them as white scars, I don't mind when those purple marines are converted and painted really well. Hmm. I I just I, don't. Oh, go ahead, Peter. No, I just I hold it to the same as as like any other faction. Um, you don't see it. You don't see it get brought up with Eldar. You don't see it get brought up with orcs. And orcs is probably the most difficult, especially with the amount of Death Skulls players out there now. I have seen very few checker patterns. And I know, like, just saying that, <laughs> I'm going to get six emails tomorrow with just everybody's fucking Death Skulls army. Like, I did it. Oh, I well, always here, do. This is the Dark Angels thing all over again, isn't it? It is, but uh, at least the Dark Angels ones, they email Pablo. They won't, they will not <laughs> now, uh, try to address it with That me. is a I thing. I think the so. players just wah at their computer when they when yeah. say something. <laughs> they're they're, they're, they're like, laughing. Oh, they probably laugh. You're right. There is an exception, though. If you have painted your army as Dark Angels and you are running them as White Scars, 
that's a little weird to me because it's like, no, they're very clearly another chapter, a very specific one. They're not your own creation. Didn't, didn't you run White Scars as a Dark Angels with your Dark Angels at one point, Brandon? Never. They were always you, Dark you Angels. Ran, you ran the Dark Angels Battle Company. That's right, and they were always Dark Angels Battle Company. Oh, that was well. Michael ran his his Salamander. You're confusing Michael's Salamander themed <laughs> Space Marines that he ran as White Scars for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, didn't Michael also run Gene Steeler Colts as custodies? Wait, or wait, something? wait, hold on. Like, it's just I'm going to say, though, I'm going to say, though, the, uh, the biggest issue I have is if your army is confusing as hell. So if all your three detachments are all painted the exact same way, and they go, these purple space marines are white scars, these purple space marines are ultramarines, these purple space marines are imperial fists, in my opinion, if there's like that's where I start having issues. Oh, yeah. like, the, you, oh, there should be yeah. some way yes. to tell them apart, clearly tell yes. them apart. Yeah. R- I quick, agree. Brandon, don't you run your Cadians as Katachan? They're painted with my own paint scheme. But they're Cadian models. Well, that <laughs> I've converted them, and I only run them, them as the one regiment. So I'm not doing three regiments in the same army. It's all the same regiment. It's I've it's like my Dark Elder, my my witches and my witches armor panels and my Cabalite armor panels are exactly the same armor panels. But one of the some of them are witches and some of them are Cabalites. So, so you can't mix them. I paint all of my Marines gold and red. And so they match my and then custodies. And call them custodies. And I call them custodies. No. And I play them as whatever the frig I want until someone says otherwise. And then I'll say, well, I don't like you. And I'll pout. And that's it. I don't care. I'm just going to run them the way I want them. But I'm also, I don't mix and match like, you know, three or four different factions. Because I agree with Skari. Like right now I'm looking at Raven Guard and I was like, well, maybe someday I'll ally them. So I'm thinking maybe I'll paint my Raven Guard pink and black um, and go for that kind of mm-hmm. emo style. And uh, it'll really look garish with the gold and red, but it'll work. So uh, just to add on a little bit more of this, and we'll move on. Um, I, I My philosophy has always been your army's paint scheme should never affect how your army plays on the tabletop. Thank you. Ever. That's it. That's that's yeah. all. Uh, if, you know, if you're if you're all running purple space marines and you're running three different detachments of three different marines, your paint scheme is affecting your army on the tabletop. Um but other than that, if you're running, if you have an all-terrain scheme and you want to run them as whatever you want, that's fine. Your paint scheme isn't going to affect how your army plays on the tabletop, anyways. Um, so that's kind of how I always yeah. felt like paint scheme should never affect paint scheme and, and playing and painting should be completely separate, personally. But not all people believe that, and that is why you get butt yeah, hurt. And those players. people are wrong. Well. You know, They're I mean, wrong, Pablo. As, as much as I agree with you, uh, I cannot politically agree with you. What? I mean, we're in different countries, I That's guess, true. but come on. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. Patron Nickel wants to know, to what extent does terrain factor into list building considering it is so random in most ITC tournaments? For example, magic boxes are the boogeyman of terrain tables, but are relatively rare when playing at LVO. Uh, I would like to add, for those of you who just screamed, magic boxes are relatively rare at the LVO. Not every table has a magic box, but... When you do get a table with a magic box, it can affect your game. So keep that there should in mind. be there should be a list of questions you ask yourself. Like the, when you're building a list, you know, should, there should be a couple of things you keep in mind. How am I going to deal with knights? How am I going to deal with repulsors because they're stupid? How am I going to deal with plaguebearers? <laughs> how am I? Sorry, I just laughed at my own joke. How am I? How am I going to deal with this? You should also keep in mind 
if you know the t- type of terrain that is at the event, you should be like, how am I going to deal with the terrain at this event specifically? If you don't know you've never been to, A, maybe contact the tournament organizer, find out what type of terrain they have, or B, have a scenario. How am I going to deal with if there's multiple magic boxes on the table? Do I have a way to interact with this? How am I going to deal with a facing Tau when there's only like one piece of terrain I can hide behind in my deployment zone? You should think of this and have like a plan. Even if your plan is put everything on the line and hope I go first and pray, you know, that's a plan. Or don't even worry about terrain. Don't build a list that, you know, matters that terrain cares about, that terrain affects. Like the Australians, all the crocodiles and snakes and spiders ate their terrain, so they put as many models on the board as they possibly can and then run them at each other. Terrain be damned. There you go. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I don't to answer I don't know. the actual question. <laughs> plan for each set of terrain that you've ever seen in your gaming experience, and some you haven't. So if you're playing on there are only forests on this table, or only crystals, or only hills, what's my game plan exactly? Um, so for example, you might have the ability to put stuff in reserve. So if you really do have a glass cannon unit, being able to take it off the board when you need to, super important. Um, or if there's all kinds of magic boxes, have units that can go into them. Um, so then whenever you find a board, you're not going to be disappointed because you were unprepared. Yep, I agree with that. Um, in seriousness. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, Mr. John wants to know, will there be a rules change to allow attacking buildings if have special bonuses? I, and Profess have special bonuses to do it, but it is totally pointless because it is only fortifications. The idea of dropping the roof on a magic box or creating line of sight in the first floor would be a cool mechanic. Uh, what do you think about a uh, rules change like that, guys? I think um, we'll have more information as as a whole, as a competitive scene, once Games Workshop starts expanding their terrain rule set. Uh, I personally don't think. I personally think standardized terrain within a tournament is is better than rules being made to mess with. Terrain. Well, a hundred percent. But at the same time, like I wouldn't be surprised if GW came out and said, "By the way, any enclosed buildings are a armor thirteen vehicle, like they used to in like fourth edition. Oh. Like there's a precedent for stuff like that. Oh, so, that's true. You know what I mean? So maybe there could come a point where that sort of works its way back. Now at this point, we're wish listing and theory crafting. But needless to say, yes, the terrain rules require some sort of, um, I want to say, arbitration by the TOs at the moment to make sure that the events run smoothly. As a, a little fun aside, uh, there was an APOC narrative campaign that I saw. They had a bunch of stratagems. One of the stratagems was a vortex grenade that lets you remove a piece of terrain from the mm-hmm. apocalypse table. Like, any, it was just gone. Um, but they also had stratagems that, like, within we pick a point every model within like 60 inches on a four plus takes a mortal wound and you know things like that so it wasn't wasn't exactly the most competitive rule set but um anyways uh let's go ahead and uh move on to mr tim uh do you prefer random terrain to make competitives more random and potentially different or do you prefer standardized terrain so you know what you're going to get I prefer both, and I would really love if uh, someday, if we ever got into some kind of professional-style circuit for Warhammer, that t- like there were tournaments that did both. So I love that. the like I think both have their merits, and I don't think one is actually better, per se, than the other. Um, the concept of randomized terrain, 
really makes you think differently about your list build. Uh, like Brandon was saying, you know, you have to think about, well, what if I go on Planet Bowling Ball? What if there's a bunch of enclosed ruins, etc., etc.? Whereas, you know, if you go to a Nova event, you know exactly what you're getting into and you can build your list around that specific scenario. Um, and there's there are definitive uh, merits to both as well as, you know, uh, negatives. Um, and I love both of them. I just like the... This like the the list building phase for me is is a really fun phase, um, and I, it's it's just great, and I you, I don't want it to stagnate. I think something that would be really cool would be if a tournament had, say, ten pieces of terrain per table, right? So you have two L style buildings, maybe two smaller ruins, a couple of like craters or forests and then a couple of like walls or crates or something like that or hills that are like bigger say very like the amount of terrain that you see on the the uh london gt style tabletop not the styrofoam 2018 but the <laughs> 2019 that was actually quite good no one no one and, talks about that one Sorry, okay no one okay <laughs> so and then what you do is instead of and then you show up to your table and it's all kind of piled in the middle and there's four ways to set up the terrain and you roll one of four ways to set up the same pieces of terrain and there's like a little chart. So you could have like set up one, set up two, set up three, set up four. So you can't ever really sort of plan for a specific setup, but each setup is just a little different to make it a little bit more spicy. And I think something like that would be really cool. Hmm. I agree. Um, uh kind of to add on just a little bit more what Peter said, I would love one day for there to be a super ultra mega world championship tournament um, where players play different rounds and there's different formats where that exactly happens. Maybe day one, it's player play strain. Day two, it's standardized strain, but like completely standardized. And then day three, mixed. I don't know, mix it up, but um, kind of like an Iron Man of sorts where you have to build a list that wins across multiple setups and multiple formats would be really awesome. Only thing I'll add, it is really nice to have a variety of terrain just so that the meta doesn't become too stale. Uh, if the terrain is literally always set up identically, it's very easy to build corner case lists that exploit that terrain to the fullest. And it, in my opinion, makes the game a little less fun. But as long as there's random terrain available, sometimes that's what I prefer. So that's what I'll gravitate towards. All right, uh, so uh, patron Matt wants to know, or he got three wins with Granats, not a little bit because he could camp in some, he got three wins with Granats because he was camping in magic boxes, shooting out of them with Astrolame and a billion paladins, or 500 points worth of paladins, and also hiding a land raid redeemer in there uh, until he could gate, you, you know, gate of infinity it. Um, so he, this actually isn't a question, he's just talking. He's just talking about Grey Knights. Damn it, man. He just wants to. So basically, I, I guess here is... um. What, uh, with magic boxes, is, is, is there ever a point where there's too many magic boxes? Um, and as a TO, if you're going to add magic boxes to your event, should they be on every table? And there should be, should they be more than two? Like, what's the best number of magic boxes do you guys think for a tournament? I like two, but not at every table. I think what happened at LVO was pretty decent. It was, what, 30% of tables mm -hmm. or 40% had magic boxes on them. Um, there may have been one or two tables that uh, the magic boxes weren't super amazing on, but in general, it seemed like that was kind of like a, a really good way to do it. You have one or two smaller 
Um, I don't like large magic boxes. Like the hangar uh, last year at SoCal was a big issue that when you guys tested it there um, and Richard Kilton hid like 200 orc boys inside one. Uh, like that's not a good, good scenario, good case, but um, you know, two or three small ones um, at 30 or 40% of tables is perfectly fine. I love it. All right, and then finally, Vito wants to know, will we ever see a standard train set up for ITC? I think there should be a certain standard required of tables, especially in a tournament. Um, we'll probably never see a standard train set up for ITC, uh, just because um, forcing... The, it's it's kind of goes against the ITC, forcing TOs to, to buy terrain and build and plan their events a specific way. Um, the ITC does, in general, like to, you know, like to um, let TOs do their thing. Um, it's what's made the ITC so successful. Um, however, I don't think like a like a generic like layout or or terrain, you know, list uh, and how you play them to that specific piece of terrain. I don't think that's completely out of the question. Um, as long as it's not necessarily forcing TOs to use it or forcing TOs to use those terrains. Although that is also really hard because of how different terrain can be in general. But what do you think? What do you guys think about if the ITC decided tomorrow everyone has to use this terrain setup for ITC, or this is a recommended setup for terrain setup for ITC events? I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't like that. I yeah. I can see As a TO. making it a recommendation <laughs> or a suggestion, but making it a requirement would well for one thing it killed the creativity of some of these events so. No thanks. And the other thing is, terrain is one of the most expensive parts of setting up an event, yes. um, for, especially in the in the beginning. Um, so forcing people into like you have to buy these pieces to make this work um, would just be a shit show. Um, on the other hand, like you said, setting up say uh, guidelines for certain terrain pieces is not terrible, and I think that's like. Given the amount of times you see confusion at tables, even at top end tables sometimes uh, because uh, of uh, certain pieces and what they do or do not do. And, uh, you know, last game when I played it, this was a X type of ruin. And now you're saying it's a crater uh, like you, you would uh, get rid of those, um, which which is good. That's about it. <laughs> All right. Uh, OK. And that is it for the questions. If you would like to submit a question. Go on over to patreon.com slash tactics to get access to the Facebook group. All right, uh, that's it. That's the end of the episode. Uh, thank you all so much for coming out, Skari, Brandon, and Peter, for coming on. Uh, don't forget to check out the Iron Halo this weekend, ironhalo.org, twitch.com slash tv slash ironhalo, something like that. Go to ironhalo.org. You'll be, able to find the, you'll be able to find the Twitch link there. Um, also, don't forget to check out frontlinegaming.org for all your tabletop goodies. ITC terrain, mats, secondhand shop stuff, etc. And also check out, uh, well, actually, you know, I'll let Peter and Scarry plug away for them. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, yeah, you can always check out 40kstats.com for your stats news. It's, uh, has, sorry, guys, I haven't updated it in a couple weeks. I was doing life stuff, and uh, there's been some upgrades happening in the background. So probably the next day or two, you'll see a big dump of six or 7,000 games. Um, on it. And of course, uh, 40k Stat Center. Uh, this week we're going to be doing a stats-centric episode uh, due to the fact that there were no GTs over the weekend. Everybody failed miserably of get at, at getting to 28 players. <laughs> also, he's lying. He's been playing with his dog. 
this whole time. I have been playing a, a lot with my dog. It's just been sitting... And that's not a euphemism, <laughs> although it is. <laughs> it's been sitting on his shoulder like the falcon. It, he's it been is. He's dressing oh, it up man. his bulldog in a falcon, falcon suit. <laughs> Why haven't I done that yet? I oh, should Google no. that. There's got to be a costume. As the falcon works, 6,000 entries put into 40k stat center. Yeah, it was a lot. My wrists hurt for a bit there. Also oh, was that from playing dog. with the dog? Yeah, okay. Yeah, also a euphemism. God damn it, guys. Uh, you're very welcome. Mm. Uh, so, don't forget, when talking about terrain and features of terrain, stay grounded, folks. Ooh. And if you ever, <laughs> and if you ever uh, want to find out more, join me every day, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Twitch on Scardcast, and I do a, a live paint stream where we sit down and paint. Paint Ultramarines models to be played as Iron Hands. As I'm actually painting as Cabalite Warriors. I, just, I paint whatever. I painted like like some some little mini titans, and I'm painting the Blackstone Fortress guys right now, and I'm going to paint a Dark Eldar Reaper soon from Forge World. A whole bunch of stuff. Also, he never plugs it. But check out Scary's Meta Mondays. Sometimes not on Mondays, but Meta Mondays. Uh, it's really great stuff. Where he just talks about competitive 40k this week. This week in competitive 40k plus tactics and bonus stuff. It's easily some of my favorite content. So, uh, yeah, because you're a Patreon, PD Pub. <laughs> well, you, you never plug it, Scary. Okay. okay well... I, I just would like the world to know. <laughs> the world needs to know about Meta Mondays with Scary. MMA Meta Monday Analysis. Oh. It's like it's like Fight Night, but not Fight Night. Uh, and you can check that out by going to patreon.com slash guardcast. Yes. Yeah, got it. All right. And then, Brandon, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, I'm just happy to have been invited to the show, so thanks. Right on. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to keeping Brandon on as a co-host for the future. We'll be able to plug the robot into... 40kstats.com and he will be able to live analyze the lists uh, all right i'm actually really pumped about having brandon on the podcast just saying if you know if anybody out there is like wanting to know more about playing warhammer competitively at all levels of the game which is like the whole point of this podcast then you know we have legit lvo winner over here so mm-hmm. i'm just saying like I'm I'm excited. I'm excited about all the cool tactical discussions we're going to have, so stay tuned for next week. Hey Siri, find me a dog falcon costume. <laughs> all right, everyone. I couldn't find any matching. God glasses. damn it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Stay Bye-bye. tuned next week when the falcon gets a falcon costume for his falcon. Bye. Ooh. <laughs> you guys are terrible.